What is up, everybody? Welcome to the Dork Depot. Episode 3, baby. Episode 3. I'm I'm officially calling it Episode 3, by the way. I joked that the last one was Episode 1, even though it was Episode 2. But uh, just to keep things straightforward, going on, this is now Episode 3. We're canceling the fact that 1 was 0, and 0 is now 1, and then... Two is one, but two is now two, so this makes it three, okay? Makes it tree. Welcome, everyone, to the Dork Depot. I'm your host, Gotis. I hope everyone is having a wonderful day today. Uh, I wanted to do another episode. Two episodes. Can you fucking believe it? Like, recorded. So they're actually recorded fairly close together. I'm going to... It'll be a few days before this publishes, because um, I got company coming into town. And I was like, well, shit, I really wanted to to get, like, a two-week run. And I'm not going to be able to because I got family coming over this weekend um, from out of town. So here we are. Uh, don't get used to it. I just, like I said, I'm going to record when, A, I want to record, and B, when I can record. And A and B overlapping. It don't happen often, folks. It don't happen often, folks. So that's, uh, you know, that's where we're at right now. But I want to show you guys I'm committed to releasing these. I really am. Um, It's no secret that I get bored of shit very quickly. And, uh, you know, I start a project and never really finish it. I have a bad habit of that. Gotta be better about that. Uh, So what's new? What's going on? Why why another episode so quickly? What what tickled your fancy, Gotis? Well, still Baldur's Gate 3, but really more specifically, uh, a lot of people um that i play with and you know give me a lot of feedback and stuff on my podcast which i appreciate my friends telling me you know what they think of it and you know what they liked about it and i I actually got some really cool feedback from a lot of my friends on the on that last episode um one the mic volume was kind of low i think i think everyone kind of agreed on that hopefully it's better i'm going to amp it uh so hopefully that helps and then two I noticed a few spots that I wasn't crazy about it, but like that that's the stuff that makes me want to like scrap a whole whole podcast. Um I didn't listen to the podcast. Um I I picked a few spots and I just listened for a few minutes and then I published it. So that may not be the most professional way to do it, but for me I think it's the best way to do it to do it. Just do it as Shia LaBeouf would say. Um, Because if I listen to it, I'm just going to hate it, and I'm not going to want to do it. You know, I'm not going to want to publish it. So I just posted it blind. And uh, so the feedback, the feedback is super valuable for me. So um, you can always reach out to me. Um, We have an email, dorkdepotpodcast at gmail.com. And uh, we do have a Twitter, but I'll be honest with you. It's not Twitter anymore. It's X. X going to give it to you. Um... I don't, I don't use it. If you, if you tweet me or you send me a DM in Twitter, it'll be, it will be months until I see it. The only time I check Twitter, um, is if I'm just scooping in on some drama on somebody that I'll be honest, that's it. Uh, so anyways, a lot of people told me after the last episode, um, that weren't playing Baldur's Gate three, that it made them want to play Baldur's Gate three. And a lot of people from another half of my friend group we're basically like, man, I don't play D&D, but it makes me kind of like wonder more about D&D. And I have other friends that have been playing Baldur's Gate 3 that have given them kind of that D&D itch. You know, maybe they've only done one or two sessions. Um, and even some of my longer term friends that, you know, I've ran some long campaigns with or been in long campaigns with, it, you know, everybody's kind of jonesing for it. So I wanted to do like a definitive BG3 to D&D 5e, BG3, D&D 5e transition. Okay, that's what we're calling it. Uh, BG3, obviously, Baldur's Gate 3, to Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition, or as we call it, 5e. Um, not 1D&D. D. I don't know shit about 1D&D. D. I'm not touching 1D&D. D. I'm going to let them figure 1D&D D out. We're just talking 5th edition here. Okay, I'm talking exclusively 5th edition. We're talking Wizards of the Coast source materials. I think pretty much all of it is Wizards of the Coast stuff that I'm talking about. 
So we're talking, you know, Dungeon Master Guide, Player's Handbook, Monster Manual, Tasha's, Xanathar's, stuff like that, right? <clears throat> so I feel like a lot of people are going to want to try out D&D. They're going to want to try out 5e. First, I think they're going to want to try out Dungeons and Dragons. They're going to want to try out D&D, and they're going to have friends that are going to tell them, oh, 5th edition's garbage. Don't play 5th edition. 5th edition's boring. You want to play Pathfinder. You want to play You want to play uh, 3 and a half e You want to play 1 and a half. Don't. Okay, I'm telling you now, don't. Play 5e. If you like Baldur's Gate, it's based on the 5e system. It's not the exact same. Um, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. But if you're enjoying Baldur's Gate 3 and you want to get into Dungeons & Dragons, 5th edition is the move, okay? And 5e is popular for a lot of reasons. It, it helped that it gained a lot of popularity during COVID, okay? A lot of people were looking for something to do and got into 5th edition because it was the current edition. Um, so there's a lot more popularity around it. There's a lot more media around it. There's a lot more um, resources available for it. So we're going to be talking about 5e. And quite frankly, and I mentioned this on the last episode, I like 5e. Is it perfect? No, but have you fucking played anything that is? No, you haven't. It, it doesn't exist. This is as good a tabletop experience for new players as I think you could possibly ask for <clears throat> so we're going to be talking about 5e here exclusively i hope my my goal for this episode is that after you listen to it you go to your D, &D friends and you say hey i want to play I, I want to try it out at least i want to watch you guys play and if you're in i bet you probably most fairly good sized cities nowadays have a gaming store go find a gaming store near you there's one right by my house um and they have games they host there uh people come bring all their stuff they have big tables for everyone to sit at and play and you can go they'll have people that will do um they usually have like a sign-up sheet right and you can sign up to do like a one-shot campaign or they might have like a new player campaign or ask them hey I want to get into D&D. Is there a group or something that you might recommend? They may have their own group and they're looking for a player and they might really like new players. A lot of DMs and groups love new players because new players aren't jaded. They're not cynical. They're they're really open to learning. So a lot of groups love new players. Um, and then on top of it, you might be able to just go and say, hey, you guys mind if I just sit with you and kind of watch? I don't really, I don't play D&D. I just kind of want to get a feel for it. I I couldn't think of one group that would say no to that. If you were just like, hey, I just want to check this out. You mind if I sit with you guys? They would love to have the company because they. let's face it. We're nerds. We're, there's a reason this is called the Dork Depot. We love to share our hobbies um, of dorky shit with anybody that will listen. I was literally in total wine today. I had to get a bunch of booze, right? Because one, I'm, I'm a drinker. And two, my wife's family is coming into town uh, and they party. So we stocked up and I literally am sitting in one aisle looking for something. And then the aisle next to me, I hear two guys talking and one guy's telling his buddy why he's got to watch bleach. And I'm like listening and I'm like, is this guy like advocating for bleach right now? And I just like came around the corner. I'm like, yo, listen to your friend. Bleach is a baller ass anime. And they were like, oh, you watch anime? And I was like, yeah. If you put the three of us, me and the other two guys next to each other, demographically, there was nothing in common between any three of us. They worked there. It's not like they were shopping. Different ethnicities across the board, different ages. You wouldn't be able to tell. If I told you one of these people is, a, is an anime fan, you wouldn't have been able to figure it out probably. And you certainly wouldn't have guessed all three. But those are the kind of things that bring people together. So when you go to a table or a gaming store and say, hey, I want to I check out Dungeons & Dragons, they're going to love to have you there. So um, go check it out. See if you have a gaming store nearby. Bring a friend. 
it's a good time it's a lot of fun i love there's a reason critical role is so popular people like to watch D D. um that being said there's definitely some things to think about that you need to be aware of when you're switching from Baldur's gate 3 to 5e uh, and i want to kind of start i couldn't possibly touch on everything but i want to kind of start with the main kind of three or four things in terms of what you might want to be aware of to actually playing. And we're going to start with the obvious one, and that's character creation. Um, obviously, when you're playing 5e, you don't have a bunch of presets to choose from. So you can make your character anything in terms of within the limits of the game itself, uh, down to the exact placement of freckles or piercings or whatever you want and i'm gonna tell you now we're, we're gonna get into the into what makes a good character if you have a good character and i'm not talking about a strong character i'm talking about a good character that you really connect with and you really bond with and you start to love this character and it's not it's not weird to feel that way about your imaginary D D character that is paper and numbers essentially um, I recommend finding a good artist and getting a commission of your character drawn. It's a really cool, um, treat to yourself or maybe a gift for somebody at your party, you know, birthday, obviously it's a for fairly expensive gifts, but you know, you can get little mock-ups and stuff done fairly cheap. You can always go on Fiverr. Um, you could go on, I'm sure like any art, art haven, <laughs> Just a shameless plug for a friend. Um, you know, probably could find an artist, work out a commission, um, and and get get your character drawn. And it really will bring it to life. And um, you'll just really start to invest and immerse yourself in this character. And that's really the key to to having a good character is the immersion of it. If you are are you feeling it now, Mr. Krabs? You know, it's kind of one of those moments where you really got to just dive into it, jump into the deep end. Don't be, you know, timid about it. Let the let the dorkiness of it wash over you and just roll up your sleeves and do it. And you're going to find that it's a lot of fun. Now, moving into character creation. Assuming we're playing with the standard official classes... Uh, you're going to find everything from Baldur's Gate 3, plus you're going to find the Artificer, uh, which I think is a really wonderful class. I do hope uh, Artificer, I mean, there's already mentions of Artificers and characters that are Artificers in Baldur's Gate 3, so I do hope it becomes a playable class. Uh, but the Artificer is kind of, it's a, it's a unique class. They are either alchemists, so they're brewing potions and stuff. Or they're they're like more of armory focused, creating um, magical items. Or there's like artillery, um, you know, kind of set for like battlefield control, um, like through grenades and bombs and stuff like that. It's a really cool class. Um, I tell everybody, play what you want. Play the class, the subclass, the race, the sub race that you want to play. And this is going to be a recurring theme throughout the character creation. But one, make sure you talk to your DM about what's allowed and what isn't. Um, personally, there's usually a handful of races that I ban out of the very extensive list of races that are available through my campaigns. Um, for those that don't know, on D&D Beyond, if you know somebody that has a, I think it's called a master tier account, any of the books that they buy, they can share with you if you're in their campaign. Um, so for my players, when I run it through there, I have that same account and I have a bunch of the source books. So if you go into a character creation in one of my campaigns, you'll see, I think, 40 races to choose from. And of those 40 races, including the legacy races from the older content, I think some of them have up to 12 sub races. So there's obviously a lot more customization. Um there's typically a handful of those 40 that I'll ban. Uh, either they're broken, they don't fit thematically, or they wouldn't be in an adventuring party for one reason or another in my campaign. Um, I always try to work with people. If 
somebody is really hell bent on playing, let's say a Goliath. And I, I wasn't planning on having anyone play Goliath in my campaign, but you really want to play this Goliath. Okay, well, why is it that you want to play a Goliath? Explain to me why without just saying it's cool. Tell me what it is that you're going for, and let's see if we can figure that out in another race or see if we could find a way to make that race work in the confines of the campaign. DMs want you to play what you want. Um, DMs also want you to talk to them before just making decisions um, with your character. So, and again, this goes back to session zero. We talked about this. Session zero is a great time to talk about for a DM. Hey, this is what I'm not allowing. This is what I'm allowing. So uh, something, something to consider there. Um, in character creation in D&D, in, in 5e, take your time, look through the source books or D&D Beyond or whatever online source you're using. Um, you know, read through your, your class, your races, understand what it is you, you know, you're signing up for. Try to have a good understanding of your character. Uh, the thing I really like about D&D Beyond in terms of their layout is as you're reading like a a class everything that you can do is presented to you top to bottom in the order in which you receive it so it's very easy to kind of layer on what your character can do if you say i want to be a paladin and you look at all the things a level 20 paladin can do it's overwhelming if you just jump straight into a top tier paladin, you're gonna be like, oh my, there's so much here. It's so confusing. It's like if you play WoW and you've ever boosted a character, or if you get the expansion and you buy it with a boost, you boost a character that you've never played, a class you've never played, and you're like, I don't know what any of these do. I don't know how to play this class. Because you didn't level it up yourself where it gives you one spell, one ability, one mechanic at a time. It throws everything at you all at once. So... Kind of the same thing. Start at level one. What do you get at level one as a paladin? Level two, it'll tell you. At level three, you get this. At level four, you get, like, read through it that way, and you'll find it a lot more easily digestible. And maybe only go a couple of levels at a time to kind of prepare yourself for what the confines of the character are going to be. Levels don't come quick in D&D, and I'm sure if you play Baldur's Gate 3, you've noticed that. Um, they do a good job of emulating that experience isn't you're not gaining two three levels a session okay it's not it's not diablo right um for classes like i said you have all those classes you had before plus artificer the differences in subclasses just in like the the base materials uh along with a couple of the guides i think there's eight subclasses for barbarian seven for bard 14 for cleric seven for druid 10 for fighter, 10 for monk, 10 for paladin, 7 for ranger, 9 different rogues, uh, 7 different sorcerers, there's 8 different warlock patrons, and there's all the wizard schools, the school of abjuration, school of evocation, uh, but there's also 3 other subclasses for the wizards, and then artificer has 4 different subclasses, so there's a lot more to choose from. Uh, if you're multiclassing, or that's a plan, multiclassing does not work the same way, in 5e as it does in Baldur's Gate 3. It's much easier to multi-class in Baldur's Gate 3. Um, that being said, I don't know. Going forward, I may change my rules, and we'll we'll talk about home rules in a second, but I kind of like the multi-classing system in 5e. I think it allows for a lot of flair. I don't multi-class a lot. It's not a way I like to play, but I do sometimes. I feel like sometimes it becomes meta and not doing it for the right reason, so I typically don't, but that's, you know, up to up to everybody. Um in in 5e if you're wondering, you need specific ability scores to to uh multi-class. So you can't just be a paladin. You need a certain I think like strength and charisma score of like 16 or something to mult to put a level into paladin so you know if you're playing a ranger where your main skills are dex and wisdom you know those skills are probably way down you're gonna need multiple ability score increases um or i mean i suppose you could say magical items but then you could never take them off or you would lose your multi-class level 
you know, to to be able to multi-class into something like a paladin, um, which makes it very, very cost prohibitive. Um, that's why typically when people do multi-class in 5e, it's typically stuff that's similar, you know, like paladins might pick up a level of fighter or a level of cleric, something like that. Um, the other thing too, is if you have an idea in your head about what you want to play, that's not represented, talk to your DM about it. Um, it's very, very easy to make up a race if you're not looking to super customize it. Um, and a really good example is I have a, I have a player in some of my campaigns and she loves to play a cat and we'll, we'll actually talk about this later. Um, because I think it's a really cool concept for a character, but she wants to be a cat. She doesn't want to be a human that's pretending to be a cat or shape-shifted into a cat. She wants to be this sentient cat. Um, okay. Well, I don't want to come up with a whole cat race, but what if we just take Elf and say it's a cat? You just use all the same bonuses, you make it a cat. You like the bonuses of Elf? Okay, well, you have those bonuses and you're a cat. Um, you know, maybe you tweak one or two things, maybe you, you know, do reduce fall damage, you do a smaller hit die, you know, penalize the hit die of the class or something, uh, you know, increase the movement speed, well, whatever it may be, there's, there's little things you could do, you know, give them better night vision, dark vision, um, and, you know, talk about the complications of being a cat. People are going to think you're a cat. They're going to treat you like a cat. Um, you know, you may not be allowed in places that don't allow pets. You may get chased by a dog. You might not be able to interact with certain things that the rest of the party is going to be able to do because you're a cat. Um, I might limit your strength score, for example. Uh, you want to be a cat, that's fine, but you can't have a con or a strength above eat. Uh, whatever, whatever it may be, you work it out with your player, you work it out with your DM. But it's easy to really customize what you want to do to any level. And I, on that note, I want to emphasize breaking the norms here. Um, it's kind of the next thing I really want to talk about. And I, I have friends that are going to feel very attacked in this segment. And I'm not attacking them, I promise. But I do want to talk about people that play the same thing the same way all the time. Um, one, it's fucking boring. It's really boring. It's boring for everyone else. And it's boring as a DM, um, to just play with essentially the same character every time. Uh, I encourage people to try new things. I think that's not just a D and D skill that's important to have. I think that's a life skill that's important to have. Um, getting out of your comfort zone is critical for human growth. And I'm not going to be a podcast that sits and talks about, you know, life skills very often. Um, but I will say when you talk to certain people in your daily life, you can talk to them and you just know like, wow, you really don't have a wide scope on things. I lived in a very small town. I grew up, I, I moved around a lot, but the place I would say I grew up from it's a very tiny town in northern Nevada, about 3,500 people there when I was growing up. Um, we had to travel, you know, upwards to eight hours to other schools if we were like in sports for wrestling and, and football. Because um, we're people think Nevada and they're like, oh, Vegas or, you know, maybe now Reno and Carson. But there's there's some bodunk shit in the rest of that big ass state. Um, that the rest of us experienced, you know, and I have friends that born there, raised there, we're pushing 40 now, and they're still there. They never left. They don't go on vacations. They don't travel. They don't meet people outside of it. And when you have the same experiences and you eat the same food and you do the same thing, you you it's small mindedness is what it is physically represented um that's not what i'm saying if you play the same character every time that you're small minded but i'm saying the human trait of never getting outside of your comfort zone is essentially the same thing 
there's no wrong way to play D&D. I will die on that hill. If what you have the most fun doing is playing a human fighter named Bill that is a battlemaster fighter that takes the same maneuvers, builds it out the same way, takes the same feats, then if that's what you have fun doing, then fucking do it. But know that everyone thinks you're boring. Know that everyone thinks you're a little lame. And know that I will make fun of you forever for it. Um, it's, it's unadventurous, which is really counterproductive to an adventure game. So I really recommend try it. Try one or two times. Try a different race. Try a different class. Try a different subclass. Try some different spells. Um, for starters, playing new classes lets you learn new mechanics. If you only ever play fighter, you have no idea how spell slots work. You don't understand it. So you don't understand how your party that are spellcasters are, are preparing spells, are utilizing spell slots. You may get frustrated that they're not like, why isn't he casting magic missiles? Well, maybe he only got one spell slot left and he forgot to cast mage armor and he really needs mage armor, you know, those sorts of things. So learning new mechanics through new classes is great it helps you learn not just how to better ally yourself with other player characters and npcs but also how to fight against other npcs um and the reality is if you try something new and you get two three levels in you go to your dm and say hey uh, I'm really not enjoying this. This isn't, I, you know, I thought it would be fun. I'm not having fun. Can I switch my character? I'll allow that almost every time. Um, you know, if you're switching characters three or four times in a campaign, no. But, I mean, even then, I guess, yeah, if you're just trying new things out, I probably would let you. So, long story long, try some different stuff out. Um, it's a great way to learn new mechanics. It's a great way to learn the game better. And you, you might find something that is more fun. Um, that feeling of the unknown, of not knowing, you know, this is all new and I'm not sure what to do, is a very overwhelming feeling for people. But when you succeed through that, that is a feeling that you don't get with complacency. When you do something really fucking awesome, the first time you play a wizard, you only ever played a fighter, and you're like, oh, that, I did that. that I would have never been able to do that as a fighter. That feeling feels awesome. Um, so the next thing I want to get into, so that, that's that. I'm just leaving that as it is. That's, you know, trying to get blood out of a stone. Um, the next thing I want to talk about is backstory um, in character creation. Uh, this is... Probably as a DM, the thing that drives me crazy the most. Um, and as a player, I dislike, I really dislike crappy backstories. Um, people really seem to stumble on the backstory, on how to write one, how to work through one, and how to incorporate it, not just into the D&D character, but into the overarching campaign. So let me give you guys some tips. And this is tips for DMs and for players. Um, I think too many people either under complicate their backstory. They just don't do enough or they over complicate it. Um, and both of those are bad. Of the two, I'd rather it be underdeveloped than overdeveloped as a DM. The most important thing that your character needs is a personality. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit. But your character's personality is defining of your character. Then take that personality and figure out how you got it. Is your character's personality cynical? Is your per character's personality, you know, just lustful? Is it wondrous? Is it homesick? Is it silly is it angry just find a personality for this character and then start figuring out why your character is that way um 
figure out what their history was, what their reason for going on an adventure would be. Nobody is going to go sacrifice life and limb for the promise of someone else getting a cure for their village. You know, that's not enough. If you're a group of mercenaries and one person has a tie to the campaign, the rest, it's got nothing leading into it. I would recommend that, again, session zero, you sit down with your DM and start spitballing your backstory a little bit with them. Start figuring out, you know, hey, what kind of campaign is this going to be? You know, this is what I was thinking for my character. Does this fit into the story? And even if you're having trouble, the player's guide has tables that you can roll, I think, like a D6 or a D8 on. And it will just give you some general, like, backstory to your character. The other thing, too, um, speaking of backstories, Boulder Gate 3, you have to pick a a backstory, right? Uh, You have Soldier, you have Charlatan, you have Acolyte, um, you have, I think, like, Street Urchin. Don't just pick one that gives you the traits you want. Pick one that fits your character. You have the same thing in D&D. If your character is a pacifist and you want to go with the soldier background, what happened from when they used to be a soldier to now when they're a pacifist? And if they are going to still be violent, then, you know, what happened as a soldier to why are they maybe not a soldier anymore, but they're still fighting? All that stuff can really help you fill in this backstory. I also recommend that you don't overcomplicate your backstory. Leave it a little vague and let your DM fill it in. Give your DM the opportunity to tie things into your backstory that you yourself don't know about. When you do that, it can really give you as a player moments in the story that are super kick-ass. So, um... Let me give you guys some suggestions, some ideas. Maybe you want, you know, the classic, how would you say it? Like, you want your classic, I'm looking for a lost love or family member type backstory, right? If you write the whole backstory of what happened to them, where they are, why they left, you don't have much in the way of a story ahead of you that's going to surprise you. Um, you're just waiting until you get to a certain point in the campaign to do the thing that you know you have to do to save your family member. If you tell your DM, hey, I want to be looking for somebody. I want to be looking for someone. I don't know who I want to look for. I want to I keep it kind of surprising. Uh, if I was a DM, I would say, okay, uh, you know, let's figure out a couple of generic parts. You know, is it a family member? Is it a lover? Might make a really big difference. Is it somebody that you want to find for a positive reason or a negative reason? Are you looking for somebody for revenge? Are you looking for somebody, you know, is it just a childhood friend? You know what? Let's figure out a generic part of it. And you say, okay, I want to be looking for uh, my wife's sister. My wife died and I know she has a sister out there in the world somewhere. I just don't, you know, maybe that's all you know. Okay, perfect. We can make that work. I would not tell you anything else. Maybe we would just come up with a name. You know, what's the sister's name? Okay, perfect. There we go. And then throughout the story, you might find little bits and clues of a person that is going by an alias that is your you know, your sister-in-law and you don't even know it. You might be at odds with this person. There may be a moment where you're in combat against this person and you find out the truth mid combat that this is who you're looking for, or maybe a body that you found was already, she already succumbed to something or she's not as innocent as you thought, or maybe it's somebody that you're falling in love with as a player character. Um, maybe it's just right under your nose. It's been the local tavern waitress you know, bringing you guys your beers at the inn on your long rest. Who knows? You know, we can do a lot of fun things with that. So that's one way that you can take a very classic trope of a backstory and just make it 
a little spicier for yourself, for the rest of the campaign, because they are going to be invested in your backstory. If you are spending, you know, sessions upon sessions looking for this person and your party, you all have this tie in together as the as the campaign goes on, you will start to feel exceptionally close to the other player characters. And I can always remember there was a campaign that I was in where every terrible decision that could be made was made. And we split the party up a lot exploring and two of them stumbled into an abolis lair. And it was a bloodbath of one knowing that they were as a player, knowing that, okay, these guys are in an abolis cave and knowing that your character doesn't know that. And I cannot stress metagaming destroys campaigns. Your character is not going to be tasked with, okay, explore this hallway. And then halfway through, you're not going to be like, I just want to randomly uh, backtrack and go down uh, Bill's hallway and just see what they're doing. Like, you're not going to do that, right? Even if you as the player knows, oh, shit, my friends are in danger. Your character does not know that. So you have to play to that. I, I, It's one of the things I really stress as a DM. Do not metagame. Do not break that fourth wall and bring your player knowledge into your character. Because those are two different things. So... I distinctly remember we eventually got to a spot where we were like trying to meet up with the rest of the party. Obviously, two of them weren't there. And two of us, there were six of us, I think, right? Two of us decided to go look for them. The other two were going to hang out and say, okay, hey, in 10 minutes, if we don't hear from you guys, we're going to come after you. So me and my friend, we were like playing tic-tac-toe in the sand in this like underwater cave system. And we're like playing tic-tac-toe as we know our friends are dying. And then like, oh, it's been 10 minutes. We should probably go check on them. And then it took us forever to get to them. And two of the characters died. Um, Of the six, two died. And one sacrificed herself um, to kill this abolith, throwing every fireball spell off a necklace, like hurling the whole necklace at this abolith to try and finish it off. Um, which of course resulted in her dying and it was solemn. It, it felt heavy in this session, knowing that two of our friends died and we had one scroll to bring one person back that we had found a while ago that we had a serious chance of failing because it was way higher than what we could cast. Um, having to choose between the two and we chose the one that sacrificed herself. Um, it, it weighs on you really get attached to these characters. So you really, really, really start to build bonds with your party members is what my tie in here is. So when you're a in a campaign, when you're in a session and that other player character that over the course of 10 sessions, you've built this rapport with this friendship with finds a big piece of their puzzle. You get it's palpable. You get excited for them. You can feel it. You could taste it. You want that for them. You're rooting for them to get it. You get excited that you guys are on the trail of something for them, and it feels really cool. So I love when players let the DM have some more agency in the backstory. Um, nothing beats a player's reaction when they find a huge clue to their backstory that they didn't even know where they were finding. It it feels cool. Um, some other backstory mistakes, you know, the classic tropes are classic for a reason. The My parents are dead. I'm avenging them. Um, revenge, you know, I'm looking for revenge on the person that killed, you know, destroyed my town, um, looking to become rich and powerful. I'm looking to rise to the top of the ranks, you know, those, okay. Those are all very played out, but try to think of a unique way to spin that variation. Maybe, maybe your family life wasn't terrible and, and your parents aren't dead. Maybe just try that. 
Uh, you don't have to be Batman in every campaign. You could want to protect your family without them being dead. In fact, you'll probably have more, more motivation and reason if they're alive. Um, maybe you'll find out later in the campaign that the, you know, the merchant lord that you're you're helping is actually planning on raising the town that your family is in. You got to make a really tough choice, you know, of betraying your employer, um, you know, and it may cost you guys a lot in terms of gold and setback and that sort of thing and leads, um, you know, to save, save your town, save your family, or maybe you get caught trying to give word to them somehow or sabotage it from the inside. There's a lot of cool things you could do with that. Um, maybe your family is the bad guy. Maybe your parents are evil people. They're corrupt politicians or they're corrupt warlocks. And um, that's where you got your magical source from. Maybe you got, maybe you're not magical and your parents are, and they've shunned you for it. Um, you're a fighter, even though your, your mom was this powerful warlock and your father was a powerful wizard and they've spent their life's, you know, dream is perfecting magic and raising their legacy to carry on their magic, you know, search of immortality or whatever it may be. And instead they just have this dumb little brash fighter, um, and they casted you out for it, or you want to prove to them that you're worthy of the family name and the family inheritance, maybe something like that. Um, think of a way to help spur a grand adventure. It doesn't even have to be that deep. Um, there was a player character in a campaign that was looking for a griffin. That's it. Not a specific griffin. They were just playing a game of hide and seek with creatures and he had been searching for a griffin just any griffin he's just got to find a griffin um you know something silly like that uh you could make a, a story of a elf who was raised by gnomes who thinks you know like a buddy of the elf situation right thinks he's a gnome um lives with the gnomes he just fancies himself a really tall gnome Maybe you even don't have your elf traits. You know, the the bonuses you would get as an elf, you have the ones from a gnome um, to kind of spice it up. Going back to my friend who likes to play a cat, maybe you've been cursed into an animal form. Uh, it's not your choice. You are a cat because you have to be a cat because of a pact you made or a curse a witch put on you and you're trying to find a cure. And, you know, if you're feeling adventurous or if you're just really lazy write your personality and just tell your dm i don't have a backstory i'm gonna let you decide it as we go as long as i'm involved and you improv everything you just find out in the middle of a thing hey this is a friend's home that you recall um playing in when you were a kid what, what, where's your friend, you know, and then the player knows, okay, I'm going to roll with this now and come up with a reason why they didn't recognize it at first or something. And those moments really create some of the, the pinnacle, mo those, those create pinnacle moments in a campaign that your party will look back on and laugh at and remember more than I remember sitting on the bankment playing tic-tac-toe with my friend who is a ranger, whose characters, by the way, her and I were kind of at odds uh, throughout most of the campaign. It was really the first time her and I tried to be nice with one another. Um, and this, you know, little gesture of playing tic-tac-toe was funnier to us and more bonding and real than anything else, than the fight with the Abolith. I couldn't tell you much about the fight with the Abolith. I could tell you I was a paladin sorcerer with wild magic and I was burning spell slots on the attempt that I could cast fly. 
randomly, like what is that, like a one in a hundred chance to try and get to my party quicker. And I was like, all I need to do is not roll, I think like two or three, which is grease, as I'm like climbing through this precarious cavern on the ledge because the rest is water and I'm wearing all my plate mail. And what do I freaking roll? I cast grease on myself right then and there and fall into the water. It That is way more memorable and way more hilarious, even in the gravity of the situation of everybody dying, you know, at the table than anything else was. So those those little moments like that really make D&D special. Um, the other thing I would say, be sure your backstory is fitting for your level and make sure your station is fitting fitting for your level um if you're a level one adventurer you are not a world-renowned powerful mage or the leader of a crime syndicate or a general in the military you are a common militia member you're maybe an acolyte or a or a wizard's assistant you know that gathers the books and cleans the tower for him um you might be a ward or a cook in the kitchen of a of a great king um, you might be a town guard member, a volunteer town guard member, but you're not, you know, you're level one. You're, you're a fucking nobody. Nobody knows who you are. You're level one. That's the point of D and D. You're just a regular, you're just a plain old average Joe. Um, and if nothing else in building your character, if you're really struggling, a quirk or a flaw, a little bit of flair can really make a character. And I'll give you guys some examples from some of my campaigns, um, you know, you don't need to do voices, but a speech pattern can be very fun. Maybe your character repeats everything they say twice. Maybe they talk really fast. Maybe they talk really slow. Uh, we had a character who, one of our friends, she played a gnome. I think it was like a gnome druid or a gnome rogue that I, she had some really good quirks in all her characters. She makes great characters. Um I think this is the one that liked buttons, buttons or shiny objects. And it also was adamant about leading the party when we would go places. They wanted to lead us everywhere, but they had a terrible sense of direction. So anytime we had to go from even just the tavern to the city hall, even if we'd been there three times, we knew you just walk out of the tavern and you go straight. She would make a, a huge in-game fuss about leading the party and then instantly making a left and like bringing us down to the docks or something. It was hilarious. We were always lost because there was no arguing with her because she was relentless about leading the party. It was so funny. I have another friend in a campaign that they played, not one that I was in, but he had shared it with me. Um... He played a minotaur that was was attracted to cows, obviously, and it hated doors. It would just break doors everywhere it went. It just fucking hated doors. It would rage. Like, something dumb like that, quirky like that, can create the best moments of nothing else. Um, I had a character that was pompous, that was just, like, assuredly always felt right. Um... That can be a little overbearing if you're playing with strangers. So if you're going to do something like that or a character that always steals, um, that's going to play counter to the party. Um, you know, make sure you're talking to everyone about that stuff first. But if you're playing with friends and you know what you can get away with, uh, you know, sky's the limit. And then going back to the voices and the speech patterns. The other really big change is the role-playing. And people are terrified of role-playing in D&D, especially new players. And I blame Matt Mercer. There's a lot of people... If you, if you go on YouTube and you search Matt Mercer Syndrome, you will find a lot of videos pointing out the harm Matt Mercer has done for Dungeons & Dragons. Now, admittedly, it's one specific area and everybody loves Matt Mercer we all think the world of him and even he is very aware of the Matt Mercer effect. You can't watch critical role with these extremely talented artists that are voice actors 
that are writers that do this for a living. This is their job and compare yourself to them. You can't do it. It's like me. I like to cook. I do my best cooking when I'm just cooking. But if I start reading a recipe and watching how Gordon Ramsay does something and comparing it to something I maybe had in his restaurant, I'm never going to live up to that expectation. I'm not a professional chef. I haven't been doing it for 30 something years. I don't have any Michelin stars. I can't compare my cooking to Gordon Ramsay's cooking. I can just cook the best that I can cook and people enjoy my cooking for that. Same thing. Do the best that you can do. You don't need to do a funny voice. Um, And if you want to try a voice, you don't have to do it all the time if you don't feel comfortable doing it all the time. Maybe you want to try it in a few spots, see how it works. Um, Great role play starts with you being comfortable with your character. When your character's personality and their, their end goal is comfortable to you, you will role play the character just fine. Being yourself. That's it. That's all you have to do. You don't need witty lines. You don't need a a specific voice. Um, You can role play your character in a lot of ways that are very engaging. And I would say I have played with numerous people that I've seen the gamut of, of people that are terrified to role play and people that really embrace it. Um, the people or the people that are nervous to role play, terrified to role play, as they start just talking more, not role playing, but just talking and getting more involved, it opens up so much more immersion because then you feel for the first time like that character is coming to life. Even if it's very reflective of the player, the character is becoming somebody. They're talking, they're throwing out what they want to do. They're throwing out, you know, what they're doing in the room. They're explaining, you know, maybe something to another character. So that's a big thing. Don't, don't stress about being a voice actor. Um, And then on that note, your DM isn't Matt Mercer either. I mean, unless he is, which fucking A, good for you. Um, you know, don't expect your DM to be able to do the things that Matt Mercer does, you know, if they're doing a pre-written campaign or somebody like me that likes the DM, doesn't always have the time, doesn't get to do it a lot. So when I, when I pick it up here and there, I'm always a little rusty. It takes me a session or two of kind of fumbling about a little bit to, to kind of get into the groove of a session. Be patient with your DM just as much as the DMs need to be patient with players, especially new players. Coming from Baldur's Gate over to D&D 5e. Um, few last minute things I want to talk about and uh, I'll let you guys go. The rule of cool applies in D&D. Uh, if your DM doesn't abide by the rule of cool, they suck. Uh, the rule of cool is I'll let you do anything that's cool. And I'll certainly let you attempt anything that's cool. If you want to ask me 800 questions about the environment because you're trying to find a way to improvise a very odd trap or situation, I'm probably going to let you do it. Um, And I'll certainly let you attempt it. If you want to try to run, jump off of a building, catch the next building as you slide down, swing into a window, um, and stab an enemy before they even know what happened... Fuck yeah, I'm going to let you try that. I am absolutely going to let you try that. You might have to make an athletics check twice, um, a grapple check or something. I don't know. I'll make it up as I go. You might have to pass two to three checks to make it happen and still roll to hit, uh, maybe with advantage. But I'm going to let you try it. It's going to be a cool moment one way or another. You're either going to do it and it's going to be fucking epic. Or you're going to miss, take a bunch of fall damage. The enemy's going to know you're there. They're going to capture you. And that's going to create something that nobody was planning for and now makes a really cool, you know, one-shot session. You know, maybe you're going on vacation and or you're not going to available for the next time. Hey, let's get your character captured. That way the rest of the party has something to do next week 
uh, when you're not here, that doesn't interfere, you know, with you being gone. You don't miss anything in the main story. Everyone else still gets to play D&D. So you could do really cool shit like that. Um, Turn-based investigation. I'm really big on this. I found that some players, you, the, the loot whores in Baldur's Gate 3, and you know who you are. You know who you are. You know who you are. Um, are the same ones that are going to want to explore every nook and cranny in 5e. They're going to dominate what they're doing in the room before the rest of the party gets a chance to do anything. So what I do is either for the session or in between combats or maybe just on a timer, I have everybody just roll a 20, roll a d20, and it's like a mini initiative where highest number gets to say what they want to do in a room first. And then the second highest gets to go after and so forth and so on. The way that I use this rule is if you were first last time, you can't be first again. And if you were last last time, you can't be last again. So you'll automatically be second to last if you roll lowest, or you'll automatically be second if you roll highest, but you can't be first both times or last both times. Uh, I feel like this gives everyone a really good opportunity to explore a room. And typically what I'll do is, okay, if I have four four players, walk into a a banquet hall, right? Uh, empty banquet hall in a old deserted dwarven fortress that they're exploring. Um, whoever rolled the highest gets to go first. And they're going to say, I want to go over and check out the table and chairs. Okay, what are you looking for? We'll talk through that. Once you check out the table and chairs, you're done. On to the next person. What do you want to do? Oh, I want to go and look at this painting over here. Okay, let's go to the painting. Let's talk about it. What are you looking for? What are you doing with it? Um, If you find something, I'll give you time to explore that. And then once you're done with that, you're not going to the next painting. You you picked what it is you want to look at. We're going to the next person. This person wants to go look at... um, you know, the kitchen hall off to the side. They want to explore that. Okay, so go over there. We'll, we'll talk, you know, the generics of it. I'm not going to let you explore the whole room by yourself, but you get first pick. Um, it's a really good way of giving everybody a chance to roll dice, to explore a room, to be part of the investigation, and be part of the campaign without punishing anybody either. Um, it's also great for shy players that don't really want to investigate when they, you kind of make them, you give them a turn. So they have to do something helps break that ice a little bit, I think. Um, So that's always a rule you can use. And you can have them re-roll that at combat. Um, You can use the combat initiative, but then obviously players with lower dexterity or lower initiatives, are never going to get to go first. So I just use a flat D20 for everybody. Um, if somebody has inspiration, they want to use it on that, go for it. I'll let them. Um, there are house rules. Uh, anytime you're playing D&D, there's, I, I've never met anybody that plays absolutely to the letter of the raw. You would law, you would call that rules as written, by the way, raw uh, is, is what you would see. If you're, you're running everything as a rules as written, uh, it can be a bit dry. I will say there are some house rules that I think probably everybody uses for different things. And you'll find if you're coming from Baldur's Gate 3, there are a lot of rules that are very different. And I think maybe my next episode, we'll, we'll keep talking about, you know, if people would like to hear this stuff, we'll talk about what's different between 5e and Baldur's Gate 3. And I'll even tell you guys, uh, I think some of those rules I'm going to steal. I'll give you one example Using a bonus action to drink a potion, that's not something you can do in 5e. Uh, you can't use a bonus action to drink a potion. It takes an action. I kind of like a bonus action to drink a potion. Um, I think it gives a lot of characters, especially lower level, a chance to to do that. You know what I mean? Um, to, to do something when they can't normally do something. I would say, and I think, I think the Dungeon Dudes talked about this on YouTube. Um, check out Dungeon Dudes on YouTube. They got some really cool stuff. Uh, I think they talked about maybe making it in their campaigns going forward. Um, You can use an action to drink a potion and that potion will automatically heal you 
for the full amount. So if it's a 1d4 potion, it heals you for four. If it's a 1d8 potion, it heals you for eight if you use your action. If you use your bonus action, you have to roll for it. Um, I think that's kind of a cool trade-off. I kind of like that. I might incorporate that. So things like that. Um, Short rest, long rest rules, uh, nat 1s, nat 20s, people have a lot of different interpretation on, um, you know, stuff like that. Well, you know, what you can do, how much talking you can do um, in a fight, people have different rules on that. So uh, the other thing that I'll I'll kind of end on, which if you know me might be really weird to hear coming from my mouth, um, given how offensive I am. But in the confines of D&D, especially with the role-playing with players, um, talk to your party and talk to your DM about any themes or subject matter that makes you uncomfortable, Uh, especially stuff that you don't want to hear or certainly don't want to have to role-play. This probably isn't as critical if you're playing with a group of friends that everybody knows everybody. I know what I can get away with in terms of my part, you know, my friends in a campaign. Um, I know the subject matter that would very specifically upset certain people or, um, you know, subject matter that would make certain people uncomfortable. And I know to avoid that. I don't need to be told. Um, But if you're playing with new people, you very well may want to make it very clear. Hey, I'm not, you know, I'm not comfortable with certain things. Now, if you are offended by everything, if if magic and undead make you uncomfortable, um, you know, D&D is probably not for you. <laughs> it's probably not for you. Uh, you know, you can't be offended by everything. I think, again, getting out of that comfort zone can make for a compelling story. Those uncomfortable feelings where you're like, oh, that's really gross. Feeling that is okay. It's okay to be uncomfortable sometimes um but there are horror stories especially for women of creepy guys in random groups that are trying to seduce their player character um there's stories of guys using like command spells and wish spells with other players characters to make them do things like it's fucking weird that this is even a thing that we have to discuss, but it exists. I'm glad I've never had to deal with it. But if you're playing with a new group of people, I highly recommend you you figure out the things that are off limits and you'll let the DM know. Um, you know, maybe, you know, violence doesn't bother you, but violence against kids is really upsetting. You could probably run a campaign without being violent against any kids, um, you know. And for DMs like myself, I like to use heavy and dark material um, to narratively get certain points across. You know, if I want to demonstrate how terrible a person is, him pushing around a kid is a really easy way to do it. So I may go for that. But if I have a player that comes to me and says, hey, like violence against kids, just I can't do it and I'm still allowing them at my table, then I know I got to come up with another way to get this point across. And sometimes those challenges as a DM can be fun. You know, how how else am I going to demonstrate that this guy is terrible? You know, or maybe it's abuse against animals. Or there, there's a million things, right? We all know what they are that might make people uncomfortable. So, and again, this is another thing in your session zero why session zeros and 0.5s are so important to because you don't want to get two months into a campaign only to find out that the theme of the campaign is now changing into something that doesn't sit well with you. So that is the definitive 1%. So it's not fucking definitive at all. That is the <laughs> that is the very tip of the iceberg of transitioning from Baldur's Gate 3 to 5e. What the fuck the point with this episode? <laughs> I didn't cover anything. Um I hope this guy uh I hope this helped you guys out. Um fuck me. I've lost it here. 
I hope that this episode was fun to listen to. I hope it gave you guys some ideas on making characters. I hope it inspired you to maybe try to get into D&D or back into D&D. Give it a give it a, a shot. If you ever want to know more about that sort of stuff, you, like I said, you can always email me, um, dorkdepotpodcast at gmail.com. Or if you know me personally, which a lot of you do, you know how to reach me. So there you go. That's all I got for you guys. We'll see what's on the next episode. Probably more Baldur's Gate. I don't know. I might switch it up, although I'm really feeling the D&D episodes right now. Um, And that was the whole point of this, right? Do whatever I'm feeling. So maybe Minecraft. Minecraft's been on my mind as well. And food. Food has been on my mind. That's all I got for you guys. Word. Peace.